Relax, buddy. This ain't no spy movie. <laughs> it's more like Rocky, you Welcome, everybody, to Real Bad Episode 4, the Breaking Bad podcast for the Real World Podcast Network. I am Kevin Ford, and I am enjoying my rewatch of the Breaking Bad television series, and my other host, Jerome Cusan, is watching it for the very first time, so do not send him any spoilers on Twitter, or uh, we will take off half of your face. Jerome, how are you doing today? I think we are all in a perpetual state of quarantine at this point. And it's just a matter of finding stuff to do around the apartment or around the house. And Breaking Bad is a, is a really good pretext to just hang around the house because I don't know if you realize this, Kevin. I have a really hot take, another a spicy one for you. Breaking Bad season four is very good. It's Yeah, it is not only very good, it's probably my favorite season of the show. And we'll get into that as we talk about this. But yeah, I guess we should say, you know, we're putting a lot of these in the can early because of the pandemic and having to stay home the commonwealth of virginia where i live has a stay-at-home order through june 10th at this time and this episode will be releasing in early may so i know try to keep things evergreen but we're putting a lot of these in the can early because first of all there's a lot of time to do stuff but two i i don't know about you but i find myself harder and harder to wait to get to the next Breaking Bad season as we continue forward with the show. No, I definitely want to want to finish this show at, at some point in the very near future because uh, it, it becomes very compelling. I think the second half run that this show goes on is probably one of the best second half runs that I've seen from any television show uh, in my lifetime. And that is not an easy statement for me to make because I, I know that Kevin and I, we both watch a lot of television, but I think even compared to uh, me, even comparing myself to Kevin, I think I watch more uh, than Kevin Ford as far as uh, some of these great shows. And Breaking Bad has kind of always been a blind spot for me, and I'm, I'm very quickly rectifying this blind spot. And it's uh, it's definitely been quite the experience being able to binge watch and uh, especially when you get to episodes 11, 12, and 13. I know that we're going to we're gonna go back to the beginning here, but I would have a really hard time waiting a week to see what happens next. Yeah, and uh, luckily you didn't, I did, and it was uh, borderline torture in a lot of ways. No, no pun intended. But I will also say, when I was watching the season, something that came to mind was that so many of like the iconic Breaking Bad moments and quotes and things that have been turned into memes and whatnot over the over the history of time since the show has concluded almost all of them come from season four I mean there's a few here and there that don't but I think that just it goes to show how good it is when you think of all these really iconic moments and and quotes from the show a lot of them reside from this season have entered the cultural zeitgeist like you and I were talking like you knew of like I'm the one who knocks well before you even started watching Breaking Bad. So it's sort of penetrated outside of the show into the grand culture at large. And I think that speaks to the quality of season four and that so many of them come back to these 13 episodes. 
yeah, I think I am the one who knocks is perhaps the most famous, but there there's so many other just iconic moments and potential gifts that could be made uh, from this season. I'm sure we'll talk about one of the darkly funniest moments in the show's history a little bit later on. But I think one of the craziest things to me is that, you know, you experience this season of Breaking Bad and you know that you are building up to this moment with Gus and Walter. And it's going to happen at some point because the end game is very clearly going to be Hank and Walt. And don't worry about spoilers, Kevin. Even I, even I, as somebody, as an aficionado of television, know that that is what the end game in some form or fashion is going to be. And that Gus was going to have to be by the end of this season. So it was just a matter of how it was going to happen. And I have to say, I did not see the the ending coming, but I will say the way I've been talking about Hector, it's kind of like I knew without knowing. Right. Yeah. They, they planted those seeds a little subconsciously as they've been carrying along. And that pays off very well at the end of season four. But of course we have to go back to the very beginning because season three leaves us the cliffhanger with Jesse the, the race to Gail Bedeker's apartment, Jesse gets there first, we see a gunshot, and then we go immediately to credit, so it's a little ambiguous as to where Jesse shot, and what I found interesting going back and listening to the podcast is that ambiguity was not completely intentional, but the way it was shot, and you could tell like some of the foreground was like a little shaky, so it looks like maybe he moved the gun or something happened. They weren't like unsatisfied that there was that it turned out that way, but they were a little surprised that there was so much ambiguity. Uh, but that's erased pretty much as soon as we start season four. Jesse did indeed kill Gale, uh, and Victor, who is Gus's associate, who runs to who's trying to beat Jesse there, he f- gets to Gale's apartment to learn he's too late. And he finds Jesse, he's stunned at what he's done in his car. Because again, this is the first time Jesse has had to kill somebody in the series. And they take him back to the lab where Walt is also being held hostage. They Mike learns that Victor was seen by some of the neighbors who are checking on what happened. And Gus is informed of this. And there's a lot of tension as Gus finally arrives to the lab. And there's Walt and Jesse who are being held hostage. And Walt tries to negotiate as Victor, or I'm sorry, as Gus is very slowly putting on a hazmat suit, uh, and he, in a very graphic moment, slits Victor's throat with a box cutter, and then he, blood goes everywhere, he very coldly gets back into a suit, tells Jesse and Walt to get back to work, and uh, we see this as both a punishment for Victor for being seen, and a warning sign to Jesse and Walt, and it, it, this first episode really goes to put all the characters in place and where they stand in each other's lives and Gus's relationship to, to Jesse and Walt and Jesse and Walt to each other. And it was just a, a very harrowing episode. And I like the, the opening is that first having Gail putting the lab together and he's using a box cutter to open everything. And that's a nice uh, Chekhov's gun for why would there be a box cutter in the lab for when Gus does what he does. And this is, I think like really the first time Gus himself kill somebody and he just does it with very cold no remorse in front of these three people and it's one hell of a moment for the show 
it's a real shift in Gus's character because I think up to this point, he's been very prim and proper. He's been the type of person who is kind of on the sidelines. And we really don't get a sense that he is this vicious person until this very moment. I think it's something that's kind of been hinted at, but never really something that's been delivered on. But here we see just how cold Gus can be. And we really see that develop throughout the season. And we see just how much uh, how much power he wants to have, and he wants to be the person in charge and not have to rely on the cartels. And that that moment when he kills Victor is one of the most dramatic, I think, in the series up to this point, because basically in this episode, we realize uh, that Jesse has killed his first person. And we don't have any evidence at this point about how many people Gus has killed up to this point, but this is the first time that we've also seen Gus kill someone. So two characters that we are relatively familiar with have have killed their first person on the show, and it's pretty dramatic and uh, extremely well done. And I think Breaking Bad does their season premieres really well. I think in some ways they are epilogues to the previous season and kind of cleaning things up, both literally and figuratively. But I really do like the way that they structured their seasons by having the premiere kind of be an extension of the previous season and not just doing a lot of table setting like so many other season premieres uh, seem to function as, especially on streaming shows. But so I, I really appreciated this premiere and just what they were able to do. And there's there's other stuff from this premiere that I really liked as well. Just the moments with Skylar and not realizing what's going on. Uh, we see a lot of Marie and Hank and just kind of how they're kind of getting through things. And the one thing I really appreciated about this season in an overall way uh, is the fact that they treated Hank's injuries as very serious and that even by the end of season four, he's still not fully recovered. I think it would be so easy to just quickly try to brush over Hank's injuries and get it over with and have him up on his feet in full, in full range of his motions, you know, by even episodes four or five. But in this case, they really took their time and he is going to be in bed and he's going to be pissed off and he's going to be collecting Rocks, right, Kevin? They're rocks. Minerals, Jerome. They are minerals. And just like I told you to get Cheetos, not Fritos. That that's a pretty egregious mistake. I, I you know, I'm not gonna say that Hank was right for yelling at his wife like that, but that's a pretty bad mistake. I agree. Yeah, those I, I enjoy both chips, but yeah, if you ask for one and get the other, they're not they're not close. They're not in the same family where you can say, Well, it's not what I expected, but fine. No, if you have that particular flavor in mind and you get the other one, it's not gonna work out for you. We are going to get to to both Hank and Marie in a second. You're right. They do a really good job of kind of checking in with everybody in the first episode. But I think we kind of get a tale of two Jessies in the beginning and the second half of the season. And Jesse, what they're portraying is how much him murdering Gail really messes with him and how hard of a time he has coping with it. I mean, he's, he's basically filling his head with noise all the time. He gets his associates, uh, Badger and Skinny Pete, to throw this constant party at his house all the time. He buys this giant stereo system. It's like the first thing he also turns on in the morning, so music's constantly going in his house. He has a Roomba going in his house just in case there's quiet moments. When he's at work, he's wearing headphones, so it's just keeping this constant noise in his head so he never has to like be alone with his thoughts or think about it it's and he's back to using drugs and he's really just shown a lack of care in his work and when he's at home and his lack of carelessness ends up getting him robbed and fortunately for him 
Mike is able to stop the the robber and recover the money. Uh, but this is when he goes to Gus, Mike that is, and says, something's got to change. We really got to snap Jesse out of it. But like you were saying with Hank, where he wasn't back in action right away, I'm really glad that they, they took a lot of time and paid a lot of attention to just how badly killing Gale messed up Jesse. Well, we had not seen Jesse kill anyone in the first three seasons. I think that was done on purpose, and it was something that they were very clearly building to and something that they had in mind uh, perhaps to do in kind of the end game of the show. And I think it was a good thing that they not only had him kill this person at the end of season three, but then they could focus a lot of season four on him going through whatever version of PTSD he is going through and then slowly kind of recovering himself mentally and just figuring out like, what is he going to do? What is his purpose in life? Is it just to be Walt White's assistant or is there a greater purpose to what he is doing? Kevin, I have a question for you. Did they know that season five was going to be the end for the show by the time they started season four? Or how did that work? That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I can say as they're doing the podcast, because there was an official one going on when this happened, there was no mention of season five being the final season or all this. Like There were some things they knew that Gus was going to was no longer going to be a character after season four and all that, but there's no mention of the next season being the last season of breaking bad. So I want to say they didn't know. And that's why they aired it the way they did with half of the season airing. And then another year, year and a half cycle goes, and then they air the second half of it. Um, but it also may have been that the show decided it wanted to end and AMC wanted to, to drag it out for the, for the sake of the ratings and whatnot. Um, that's at least my recollection. My guess is it's the latter is that if you call it a season six as opposed to a season five, then my guess is that people re- can renegotiate for higher contracts. But if you say, oh, we're doing a 16 episode season five, then it's still technically considered to be the same season, even though the reality is, is that it is two seasons. And uh, AMC also played this game with Mad Men as well. And I, uh, I remember being very frustrated by that, just, just the inequity of episodes, but we'll get, we'll get to that when we tackle season five. I mean, to me, it just comes across like they knew that season five was going to kind of be the ending of the show, just the way that they approached it and the way that everything just kind of really fit neatly into place. And I mean, for me, I think when it comes to dramas, I think 60 to 65 episodes, and I know this is a little bit longer than that, but 60 to 65 episodes to me is the perfect amount. And you could just see, I mean, it feels like there's a little bit something that goes on in every episode. And there's, there is, there is, a, there are a couple of filler moments throughout this season, but they are very few and far between. Also, I think it's interesting to point out that AMC at this time had Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and The Walking Dead all going at the same time. So they were uh, pretty happy, I'm sure, around this time in uh, early 2011. Yeah, and I mean, we could probably do an entire podcast just about AMC and the role that they played and kind of how they have faltered since then and haven't really been able to create an identity for themselves beyond those shows. Because if you think about it, the shows that are still the most relevant for AMC are shows like The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, and Better Call Saul, which is a spinoff of Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a whole, that's a whole conversation of itself. But I just want to point out like how truly amazing it is that 
people talk about the golden age of television. I think Mad Men and, and Breaking Bad are still so revered as being two of the greatest television shows of the past decade, if not ever. And here they are airing simultaneously on the on the network. Not like at the same time, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, AMC was airing two of the greatest shows of the decade, perhaps of this century. And they were also airing The Walking Dead. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, all right. So you talked about Hank, and that's who I want to talk about next. Like you said, he's back in his home going through physical therapy. He's on leave from his work at the DEA and has taken up collecting minerals as a hobby. Lots of stuff getting delivered through the mail. Lots of cold moments to Marie who's – gosh, she's trying her hardest to be the the wife who supports him, especially when he's going through physical therapy and he's just – not reciprocating, disinterested. And so what does Marie do when she feels overwhelmed? She takes up, uh, she goes and falls back into her klepto ways in the form of making small robberies at open houses under these veering aliases. Boy, I could not wait for you to watch this episode when I was re-watching season four because I had forgotten that her, her kleptomania had come back in this way. I have to tell you, Kevin, that when I talked about filler and the things that I didn't like about this season, this is right at the top of the list. I do not like the Klepto storyline because it's it's not going anywhere. And I really wanted to say something at the end of season four, something to, something to the effect of, well, I'm so glad that that shoplifting storyline paid off, didn't it? And it really didn't. So I think this is like the one blemish on this season because it just it feels like they have nothing for Marie to do except to support Hank and this is kind of what they try to do every time they want to give her something beyond that and yeah I just that that episode in general is probably one of my least favorite in the entire run of the series so those are those are my thoughts that's kind of the one negative thing that I will have to say about this season otherwise it's going to be very very positive because as I've said I think the second half of this season and I mean, the run that this show goes on from season, I would say episodes like nine through 13 is 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 pretty incredible. So I didn't hate it as much as you did. I thought it was actually kind of clever to bring it back. If it lasted any longer than one episode, it definitely would have been annoying. And especially because she gets caught pretty quickly. But I thought at least they had an explanation for it as like her outlet to vent takes this weird form of kleptomania as opposed to just bringing it back with no rhyme or reason. I, would I have preferred to not see it at all? Sure. Um, and yes, there's definitely more they could have done with Maria, and it could have taken form another way. So I'm not saying this was the best use of that time. Uh, but I, do, I will say I was impressed with her acting chops in in the making up these aliases and lies and whatnot. So at least Betsy Brink got to show some of her acting chops in, the, in that respect. That's the only good thing I'll say about it. Yeah, I mean, I think Betsy Brand is doing about as good of a job as you, as you could do. I think, I mean, I think the role is often pretty thankless, but I think she does as good of a job. And she is just in purple perpetually. I don't know if you noticed that, but all the time. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's that's a big staple of her. purple, 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 everything. Yeah, it's um, especially after I was watching the movie Glass, I really noticed it because Mr. Glass is always in purple, so... Is he? I feel like I could have heard you talk about the movie Glass somewhere else, though, but I'm not sure where. If you go to the if you go to therealworld.com and you listen to Superhero Pantheon, I wasn't even going to plug it, but Kevin has given me this opportunity to do so. So you can go and listen to Brian and I's thoughts on the movie Glass, a movie that we both uh, enjoyed. It's not great, but we enjoyed it. Well, there you go. I mean, hey, enjoying it is is about much you can expect from a an M Night Shyamalan movie. To be fair. 
I mean, it's better than Hellboy 2019 and X-Men Dark Phoenix. Maybe I can listen to your episode on that, too. I probably won't. Anyways. Don't want it. It would be better to listen than to watch those movies. Okay, fair enough. Well, so in Hank's case, like he said, like we said, he's doing physical therapy at home and he's checked out. But one day, one of his DEA colleagues drops off the Gail Bedecker file off at his house, um, which includes a lab notebook. That's kind of the big cliffhanger at the end of season one is they find on the premises a notebook with all the notes he had been taking about the lab, the underground lab of Gus's that Walt and him were cooking in. And they bring this to to Hank and kind of say, like, hey, we like your thoughts on this. Because they think they have found Heisenberg, that Gale is Heisenberg, which does produce maybe the best thing David Costable's ever done in the form of a karaoke video they find in his file. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it is 100% worth YouTubing. And, and I think... This is one of those things where I'm like, man, I wish I had the season four DVD because there's got to be some great outtakes of David Costable at this karaoke place. I mean, it is an iconic moment for him, and he has been in a lot of memeable moments, both on Breaking Bad and in the show Billions. And it's pretty great to see just a character actor who's kind of been around the block, so to speak, has been on shows like The Wire and Damages and things like that. And between this and, like I said, Billions, I mean, he's just in so many memeable moments, so many crazy moments. And uh, I say good for him. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the plot. But the thing that I really appreciate is that once in a while, Breaking Bad will just do something funny for the sake of being funny. And so many shows nowadays... They try to be so self-serious. Even the comedies kind of try to be self-serious at times. And this show is not afraid to go comedic. And it's also not afraid to be darkly comedic, as we'll get to. No doubt about it. It's great. And what's interesting is Hank's having fun watching this video and going through the notebook and all this stuff. And he's really impressed with what he sees. And he's pretty satisfied to give up on the case when... And we'll talk about Walt a little later, but a wine drunk Walt, basically, his hubris is not going to allow him to get away with hearing Gales, the genius who came up with this stuff and convinces Hank that it's worth going through the files again to see if there's somebody maybe above Gale who's running the operations. And that leads him to find the Poyos Hermanos napkin with writings on it, which is strange to him because Gale is a known vegan. This leads him down a path where he's convinced Gus Fring is using Poyos as a front to produce menth, even establishing that Gus's fingerprints were in Gale's home. Like, Hank is nailing it without knowing it. And Gus has an alibi that convinces the DEA, but not Hank. And the thing that I really like about this is that the understated thing that they never say, but the DEA is ready to wrap this up and call this a day with Gale being Heisenberg. But I think the key reason that Hank isn't so satisfied is because, well, he was shot and they weren't. He was the one who was almost killed by the cartel. So I think he really wants to get to the bottom of this, even if his colleagues already wrap up. And I like that that's never explicitly stated. But to me, that's kind of the whole undertone of why Hank is weary of Gus's alibi and all these other things and, and going and making these deep dives and making these co- invested these connections between all these different places. So I have a question about that that scene where Walt gets wine drunk, because I think there, there's a couple of ways to interpret that scene. I, you mentioned the hubris angle. Is it that Walt is being cocky and he knows that he is in fact Heisenberg and that's why he's 
not in not trying to get caught, but just kind of pr- trying to prove how smart he is, or is he trying to get Hank to investigate Gus? Because I think that's the other thing that I was thinking about. Is that a possible interpretation of that scene? So it's I guess that's possible. But what makes me think is hubris is what happens even before that. When he's at home and he's talking to Walt Jr. And Walt Jr. tells him that, oh, mom mentioned that you're moving back in on this date. He had not consulted about this. Then his son is drinking out of a Beneke mug. Of course, Beneke being the man that had an affair with his own wife. And then here he is, and his work is being overlooked and given credit to somebody else. So all of these things are kind of going on in his in his brain and all this this day. Not to mention being constantly beaten down with this repeated story of his gambling past that he has to recall from memory, and that Skyler's pulling the strings on. So I think his his pride is being challenged in a lot of ways this entire episode, and that manifests with him getting a little you know having a little too much wine, and then having to tell Hank this. That's why I think it comes from a place of hubris more so than him going to get Gus. I think that's, I think you've explained that really well. And I, I do want to point out that the other thing that they do with Hank, again, Hank has kind of been in the background in so many ways of these, of this, of the show, but the, even the way they end a couple of the episodes, there is one episode. I mean, it's not, I am the one who knocks, but asking why a vegan would want fried chicken is a great way to leave your audience hanging, so to speak. I really like the way that they, they ended that scene and ended that episode. And then there's that other, there's another episode where he exposes the fact that Gus's fingerprints were found at Gail's apartment. And I think you are finally starting to see that Hank is good at his job. And this is something that I think we've talked about before with the idea of if you are going to have a character, they either need to be a good person or they need to be good at their job. If they are bad at both, then what you end up with is a total failure of a character. And Kevin, is this a good, is this a good, that's a good segue for you. In what respect? Um, there is a fail character on this uh, in this season. Ted. Oh, well, yeah, I guess we can get to that in a second. But I do want to say, I mean, I want to give Hank a little more credit here before moving on to, to that stuff. What I do want to say is, I mean, he like you talk about being good at your job. First of all, the the final scene of it's like episode six or seven where he's telling to Gomez and his boss laying out everything about the connection to Gus is one of my favorite scenes of the whole season. It's what we've wanted to see from Hank this whole time. Then he gets so close when he puts together that the Gus owns this laundromat and that he thinks there's might be a, a meth lab in there. And Walt literally has to get them in a car crash to once again take take Hank off of his feet and have to recover at home again. That's part of the other reason why him recovering for so long was so good. Not to not only to add the severity of his, the gunshot injury, but of course once we see he's off his feet, he's really working hard and getting really close to discovering them. Um, and then this has to happen. So really good stuff with Hank all around. Uh, and, you know, it gets to the point where Walt even has to call a fake warning into the DEA. So Hank has is forced to stay at home. And it also helps protect his family. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But uh, Hank, for me, is is one of those, like, I talked about how Jesse's character was so well built last season. For me, Hank is like one of the MVPs of season four. So I know that you might not be an Agatha Christie fan, Kevin, but uh, you have seen the movie Knives Out, right? Yes. So you know how the last 20 minutes to a half hour is just Daniel Craig bloviating about what actually happened and how he knows 
who the killer is and he just lays everything out for the audience and the people that are in the scene right that's what that hank scene reminded me of so much is that that kind of scene and it's been done in other movies and tv shows but i think when you have when you can do that well and you can just make all the pieces come together like that, I mean, it just makes for incredible storytelling and you're really putting over your character as a really, as a really intelligent, thought-out person. And that's what I love so much about that scene that you mentioned is that you're really seeing Hank just put everything together, that this is not just something that is coming out of nowhere, that he's slowly been building up this knowledge in his head, sort of slowly figuring out what's going on. And even in this season, it's not like he just has an aha light bulb moment and it all comes to him at once. This is something that builds over episodes upon episodes to the point where at the end of episode six, he does have this long monologue where he explains everything that's going on and it all seems very circumstantial. And then it builds up to the moment when he reveals the fingerprints and then it's like, oh, game on now. I mean, then we know where things are going to go and that Hank is going to be chasing after Gus. So I love those kinds of scenes in mysteries. And even though this is not of the same, it is not a mystery per se, but Hank putting the pieces together is is definitely a, a great moment. And probably Dean Norris is best on the show. Yeah, just tremendous stuff in season four. He was a, a real joy to watch, put all this stuff together and watch him be this tremendous DEA agent. And I think, again, since season one, when we find out he's a DEA agent, his brother-in-law is, is cooking this meth. It's like it's only a matter of time before he starts getting on the trail and here we are we were in the beginning processes of this and he gets again so damn close to pulling that string that unravels everything and now Walt has to go to desperate measures to get him off of it speaking of some desperation we'll we'll get into Ted vis-a-vis Skylar her mission for this whole season has been basically making sure every single thing in Walt's story about earning his money via gambling is absolutely airtight making sure the money's all laundered and that nothing can be traced back to them so she is still on the case of purchasing the laundromat for them to launder the money through and even though she was unimpressed with him last season Skylar decides that she's going to use Saul Goodman to assist in some of these scenarios in which she needs to keep things airtight and this introduces us to two of Saul's assistants it was last season we learned that Mike is not an assistant of Saul's he's an assistant of Gus's and to me, it feels like Hewell, who's played by the comedian Lavelle Crawford, and Kubi, who's played by Bill Burr. These are the two types of guys that definitely feel like they would more be Saul, Saul's assistants than Mike's, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. They are They are a joy to watch. Uh, Bill Burr, I'm not a big fan of his comedy, but I think he is the perfect person to play the role that he does. And even though he's only in a couple scenes, I think he really, he's just fantastic in those two scenes. And I don't even care that his Boston accent shines through, even though he's living in New Mexico, I can accept it and move on because I mean, if you want a guy to kind of play a shady character who can talk fast and make threats, I mean, Bill Burr is that kind of guy. He's very good at it. Yes, he is. And he does a really great role in pretending to be an environmental enforcement officer who is threatening to shut down the laundromat, or I'm sorry, the car wash. That's what he said, not a laundromat, the car wash, due to contaminants in the nearby water. Uh, and it's great because Skyler's giving him all these enforcement laws and codes and things like that that he's violating through an earpiece that Kubi can regurgitate. And this causes him to promptly sell her the business, in which he's able to negotiate below the original price. And this is after he didn't want to sell to her because of the way that Walt left. So she's using Saul's assistance and her own smarts to get 
and finally purchase the car wash. And now they have their, their system to funnel the, the cash through. So there's no questions asked. I love that. I just love that they bring the car wash back. I mean, it would be so easy to just completely abandon the car wash since Walt no longer works there and they could have just left it by the wayside. But everything, a lot of the, so much of the, what happens on the show, even in the first season matters and they keep bringing it back. And I am just impressed with the fact that it's the same owner. He's kind of a dick and uh, they pull, they pull one over on him. And yeah, I just, I love the fact that, you know, they're able to reintroduce the car wash in a common sense way. They need to launder money. (laughs) I love the fact, I I just love explaining how laundering money works because it's one of those things that it's so, again, it's kind of goofy. It's kind of funny, but the fact that they have to explain it and the fact that they have to go through all these steps, I, uh, I, I tremendously appreciate that. And I think so. It, it comes across to me like this is the season when people really turned on Skylar, at least based on her behavior and the fact that she not maybe not to, maybe not become an equal, but the fact that she is becoming so involved in Walt's business. This seems to be the reason why people do not like her character. And there was even one episode very early on when even she was getting a little bit on my nerves. But for the most part, I really appreciate the fact that they do have Skylar becoming involved in the business. And kind of going through some of the same pratfalls as Walt did as he became a drug dealer. That, yes, he is able to solve one problem, but then another problem comes and these problems then start to just continue to evolve and and build on top of one another. So just in an overall way, I really liked what they did with Skylar in, in in so many ways and keeping her involved and directly tying her to what what's happening with Walt and the fact that she knows what's going on so she doesn't have to play dumb and the fact that it's kind of her story about him being a gambler and not his story. I think that makes a huge difference as well. Yes, she she definitely gets some really great moments, including where we're going next. But I will say before we, we leave the car wash, I I found it to be a great moment of catharsis when Walt's doing the walkthrough with the owner and he keeps saying that up, oh, you're buying the car wash as is, as is, as is, because he doesn't want to clean up. He doesn't want to repair anything. Just you get it as is. And then he goes to take a he has the first dollar he ever owned framed on the wall and he's getting ready to take it away. And Walt says, ah. You said as is, and then he spends that dollar on a Coke in the vending machine. Ah, oh, great cathartic moment to me. I get it. That's maybe a dick move of Walt, but uh, I thought the the car wash owner deserved it after all the crap that he had put them through. Yeah, I mean, the car owner is very clearly not a good person. And if you detach the fact that Walt is a murderous monster, then just thinking of it from his perspective – all Walt is is an employee that he treated very poorly, and Walt did get treated very poorly. That does not justify any of his other behavior, but the fact that the the car wash owner just was such a piece of shit, I mean, not great. I mean, so yeah, go, go Walt in that situation. Most definitely. I don't know if you ever listened to my Lost podcast, Jerome, but myself and Ben would always award the asshole idiot of each episode of Lost. Somebody who was just, you know, as explains, was the biggest asshole or idiot of that episode. If we were to do that award for the seasons here, Ted Beneke would absolutely get the asshole idiot award for season four. And I don't even think there's a close second when it comes to this. Do you want to tell people that I say, so I have a friend who has been doing a Mad Men rewatch, which is something that I'd love to do at some point. And I sent you a text message that very clearly laid out my thoughts uh, in comparing the two shows. So Kevin, what, what did I, what did I tell you? 
Oh my gosh, I, I'm failing to remember what character you compare them to, but it was, but you nailed it. It was spot on. So what I wrote down, I actually wrote this down to make sure that I wouldn't forget it. My literal language was, Ted Beneke is the Duck Phillips of Breaking Bad. Yes, that's that's right, and that is absolutely perfect. I'd love to do a, a Mad Men rewatch too. Sometimes is that is that Mad Men podcast you did still available anywhere? I don't even know if it is. Um, man. I don't know. That's that's a really good question. Well, perhaps we have another project on our hands. Oh boy, we we haven't even gotten through break. We got to get through Better Call Saul. Jeez. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. We could talk about that later. We do have to get through a pandemic. But yes, so that is to me a spot on. And Ted comes back into the picture because. He's being audited for tax fraud, and Skyler's name is all over the books that she cooked for him. And what I love, and, and this is, to me, Skyler in some ways thinking outside the box in the same way Walt has to in a lot of situations to fix situations. The scene where she pretends in front of the otter to be this complete and total ditz, dressing up in the way she does, acting the way she does, to get the otter to believe that the mistakes made were just due to negligence and not this purposeful tax scheme and gets them to drop the threat of prison time for Ted is a masterful performance by Skylar in this moment. Uh, But Ted still owes a substantial amount of money to the IRS. And she again goes through Saul to write a check to Ted for the amount he owes to them, covering it all up as inheritance from a long lost dead aunt. And what does Ted do? Jerome, does he give that money to the IRS? No. He spends part of the money instead on a Mercedes and to restart his business. How much of an idiot is Ted Vanneke to do this? He is a monumental idiot. And I think the show is kind of in on the joke at this point. I don't know whether it's because of feedback or it's because of things that they had seen in the past, but it really feels like they turned the stupidity knob on Ted all the way up because I mean, he wasn't he wasn't this dumb on previous seasons, right? Like, I feel like they really go out of their way to make Ted just seem like the most useless human being on the planet Earth. Because not only does he treat Skylar like crap and kind of turn his back on her and not spend the money properly and just basically treats her like like nothing. And then he's also really bad with finances as he gets himself into a lot of tax trouble. And then just as he's about to get bailed out, of course, he decides to spend the money on something very, very frivolous, a Mercedes, which is just stupid and trying to restart the business, a business where you got in a lot of trouble. And I just, I couldn't handle it at some points, Kevin. It was just, he was just so dumb and so useless and I just wanted him to go away. Well, I think you may have gotten your wish then by uh, the later in the season. Skyler has to come clean about where this money came from. And Ted now doesn't even want to spend it because of it coming from presumed gambling. He just, for some reason, doesn't feel right about it. And But, of course, he'll hem and haw when it comes to returning the Mercedes. So, once again, here comes Saul with, with Skyler's assistance where he will and Kubi come to his house, literally force him to write a check and mail it and uh to the IRS and they're going to spend their time staying at his house for days and days until they, until they hear that the check has cleared and Ted tries to make a literal run for it to where I don't know, but he ends up tripping on his carpet, which they, they beautifully set up earlier in the scene 
where he's walking to the doorbell and he almost trips over his carpet, just masterfully setting it up. So he trips and hit and slides and bangs his head very hard into the island on in in his kitchen and he's uh knocked himself out. And I love most of the thing I love is how Huel and Kubi are just non non disturbed by this scene. Just like they, they even think of him as an idiot. I mean, did he kill himself? I guess that's a, a question we're gonna have to discover. You you dropped the orange thing on me, which I which I had never known. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so there is a very famous scene in the first Godfather where Vito Corleone gets shot. I'm spoiling a 45. It doesn't matter. It's 50 years old. Uh, so Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shopping for oranges, and he nearly gets killed. And in that scene, there are oranges, and there are other scenes in The Godfather where every time somebody dies. Oranges can be seen nearby. So that is a very, that was not done on accident. The orange and death connection is very clear. So I immediately thought of that uh, when it came up. And just the look on their faces as uh, Ted tries to make a run for it, just some great reaction shots. And when you hire comedians to, play these kinds of roles that's what you get i mean because i mean it's surprising to me if you look at this cast as a matter of fact so many of the people in the cast have either sitcom or stand-up comedy backgrounds bob odenkirk of course was uh, he did a show with david cross and he was on snl so he's got a comedy background brian cranston was on malcolm in the middle for a number of years that's a sitcom you mentioned the two comedians, including Bill Burr. So there are so many people on this show who have comedic backgrounds. I don't know as much about Anna Gunn and Dean Norris, but I do know that you know four of four very important people have very strong comedic backgrounds, and it, and it works really well in these situations. And this is a scene when I first watched it, and when I first watched the show through, I probably rewound a good ten or eleven times and just laughed harder each time because. God, it is just so funny. Ted Beneke becomes dead Beneke, am I right? <laughs> yes. I desperately want to find a video with him running into the island and either the, preferably the Benny Hill music, but I guess the Curb Your Enthusiasm music would also work. Like maybe like maybe he like he does the run, it finishes, and then the Curb Your Enthusiasm theme kicks in. I think that would work out best. I, I agree with that. And uh, that's, that's a lot of Skylar's dealings with her. So she's spending a lot of money on uh, on Ted to to make it so that this audit can no way get traced back to her or her family and end up exploiting their their whole scene. Um, and then we get to the second part of Jesse's development here, and I'll start talking about his personal life. Uh, something that he's doing is there's one of these parties where uh, Andrea shows up. He's the girl he was talking to from the from the uh, the Narcotics Anonymous meetings with last month, and they developed some romantic relationship, and she has her son Brock, which Jesse really relates to. She was out of the picture, but comes to check on him, and Jesse ends up giving her money so here her and Brock can live comfortably on their own, move to a good neighborhood, and assures her that nobody will come back to watch, to, to get the money from her. Like, it's not going to be traced back to something bad. And he even has Saul come and check on her, and uh, they do eventually rekindle their relationship. So them getting together definitely helps Jesse put his mind at ease. Uh, he goes back to Narcotics Anonymous, even in another tremendous scene from Aaron Paul with the monologue where he uses the allegory of a dog and talking about Gail and how that made him feel. But that, I think, him having that moment where he comes out in Narcotics Anonymous and 
explains to them, A, how bad he feels about this dog, and then even reveals like, hey, I came here to sell drugs to you people. I'm not a good person. I think that moment, getting it off of his chest kind of gives him some relief and is and then he's able to once again build that relationship with Andrew again and have that personal life outside of his professional life uh, and and build some some self-respect and self-esteem again. And I know that you were really impressed with that monologue scene too in Narcotics Anonymous. Aaron Paul just has these amazing moments of just coming out and blurting out these these monologues. And the thing is that they're very careful about how they how they use that because you don't see it in every episode. You will see it maybe once or twice a season because, I mean, there are a lot of scenes when Jesse is either being very quiet, he's being silent. So a lot of the performance comes through that. But then when he's just able to go off, I mean, he's just a wide range of emotions. And I think he's able to play these wide range of emotions so well that I think in some ways his performance is, is the most impressive on the show and that that's not to take anything away from Brian Cranston, but I think with, with what Aaron Paul has able to been able to do, you're, you're seeing so much growth. And I think with, I mean, the other thing is that Walt has such a consistent look. He's got the bald head. He's kind of got the same wardrobe other than some like literal physical things where he gets beaten up. We don't see a lot of change to Walt, but Jesse, you see physical changes and you see kind of the wariness of the situation coming upon him as the season is wearing on. And it's just, it's incredible to me because it would be so easy to just turn Jesse into Walt's lapdog or to just make him an assistant. But they have consistently gone out of their way to make him more individualized as a character by giving him his own love interest and by having him in some ways be a more emotional person and, or at least more in touch with his emotions than, than Walt. And that's something that I also appreciate because typically whenever we watch these anti-hero shows, it's always the anti-hero whose emotions we are supposed to connect with the most. And especially by the end of season five, I truly feel like we are meant, we are most meant to connect with Jesse. I fully agree with that. And he and Aaron Paul just knocks it out of the park in this season, especially with just how much different emotions and types he has to play from the beginning of the season to the end. There's a lot he has to access internally, and he just does a a phenomenal job with everything here. And in the in the professional life, he gets I put this in quotes promoted to running errands with Mike. They yank him out of the lab, so he's with Mike Ehrmantraut and their relationship, by the way, Mike and Jesse's was my favorite to watch all season long. I love the interactions of those two characters. And whilst they're running errands, they even stage this robbery to prove Jesse's loyalty to Gus and the team. And Gus realizes that Jesse could run the lab without Waltz. Although Jesse's saying this whole time, if, if they decide to kill off Walt, like he's gone, he is totally done with this. Obviously that's not, that wouldn't work out the way it does, but Jesse definitely still has some loyalty to Walt, even if their relationship falters so much at times and it it almost totally explodes near the end of this season before they reconcile under very auspicious terms but it's interesting to see that jesse in his i I did but it's interesting to see that like jesse jesse's building this relationship with mike 
Gus is putting some trust in him, which I think he likes, but still at the end of the day, at his core, he's asking a lot of questions like, what are you planning to do to, I love that he still calls him Mr. White. He's like, what are you still planning to do with Mr. White? If Mr. White is gone, then I'm not, I'm not with you anymore. So I like that he's kind of getting pulled in two separate directions and they're really not letting him in on everything either just yet. They kind of throw him in this car and don't tell him what's going on and all that is sort of mind games to see where his head is. But I think Jesse handles that very well. Yeah, again, I think we're supposed to see the the actual struggle, and I think that's the way that it is portrayed, because there are moments when it seems like Jesse is going to turn on Walt, and there is there is a game being played by both Gus and Walt of manipulation, and I mean, I, I've compared Walt and Jesse to an abusive relationship, and I think that that really becomes realized by the end of the season, but... I think what you see is that you see these manipulations and Jesse is constantly getting caught in the middle of it. And it's really, really depressing because you know, you realize and understand that this person has gone through so much in his life. And it is, it is not easy to try to just go through these different emotions. And I just love the fact that, that Aaron Paul is able to do so much because again, I think this could be a very thankless role and they've the, the writer, the writing team has very, very much taken the time. They've gone out of their way to give Jesse the love interest. And I, I, I wasn't sure where they were going with Andrea, but as they kind of had her around and they had Brock around, it's very clear that they were going somewhere with that, that they were very specifically going to put them in some kind of peril. And yeah, I think it's, you could really see that coming and not, not a bad way. Like I'm saying that that, that's good storytelling that they did that. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with just how they treated Jesse's character development and giving, uh, giving him two people to care about. All right. Well, let's talk about Walt. Our main guy, uh, just in and of himself. We, we talked a lot about the Hank thing and the wine drunkness and all that, but there's a couple other things uh, and, and what he did with Skyler. But there's two other relationships. Obviously, first and foremost is his relationship with Gus. Major tension between the two of them. Walt realizes that his days are numbered if he doesn't kill Gus first like he did Gale. And he ends up purchasing a gun illegally at the very beginning of episode two. And you had pointed out who this actor was. I had no idea who it was that he had this scene with. Do you want to enlighten our audience? Uh, did I write this down? That's the big question. Did I write down who the actor was? Uh, so this is an actor who's been on a number of shows. Perhaps most famously, he was on Deadwood. He was. Uh, he's also been on, on Supernatural as well. And again, I think the thing that this show does so well is it's able to use character actors in a really good way. David Constable is a, a perfect example of that. Even Dean Norris is kind of a that guy. He's not somebody who's a, who is a major star, but is somebody who is just around and in so many of these projects. And Jim Beaver is the person that I'm referring to. And the crazy thing is that, you know, Jim Beaver has been on some of these shows like a Deadwood. He was on a couple seasons of Deadwood, in fact. And here he's just in one scene in this one performance. And I think it really just enhances things. He was also in Watchmen as well. I'm sure, I think that's might have where you might have remembered him. And again, he's only in one like one scene on that show as well. And uh, he's just really good, just really solid. And the the scene with Walt and the gun is just funny for a lot of different reasons, because even though Walt is trying to be a badass, he's, he's not a badass. <laughs> no, not at all. 
and I Anna Gunn was on Deadwood too, so there's that connection between that character and the show itself. That is correct. Right. I always forget that Anna Gunn was on Deadwood, but yes, uh, and she's very good on Deadwood. And there's so obviously, I think Gus knows that Walt is trying to kill him because through Mike, he says he absolutely refuses to see Walt face to face. Wall is, of course, mad by this. He's mad when he sees that there are motion-censored security cameras installed in the lab. And then there's even a new right-hand man of Mike's who's introduced named Tyrus. He's replacing Victor, who was killed. He's played by Ray Campbell. Ray Campbell is like another kind of that guy. If you go through his IMDb, he's like in one episode of a lot of things. He had recurring appearances in The Shield and a Tyler Perry show, for better or worse. And he doesn't have a lot of speaking roles in this, but he definitely plays a pretty uh, convincing, menacing right-hand man. Does a lot of spying on Walt outside of the lab, too. Um, Does a lot of stuff for him, like when he he confronts Jesse for Gus at the hospital later in the season. Again, not a lot of speaking roles, but just his face and the way he maneuvers himself, he's definitely a convincing, menacing type of character. Did you know of Ray Campbell or did he ring a bell to you before the show? He's definitely somebody that I've recognized in other roles before. And I, the Tyrus character, there really isn't a lot of pathos to that character, but I appreciate the fact that they had him around and that he was just a menace and he was just there to be a thorn in Walt's side. And so you mentioned the scene when Mike says that that Walt and Gus will never see each other face to face again. Is that did that end up being true? Until, I think until the end where Gus pulls him aside and um and threatens him and his family, I think that is true. Because because the closer he gets is he's at Gus's house and Tyrus calls him and says, you know, hey, you know, stay away. And then you see him Gus looking at him through the window of his home, but I think that's the closest they get until that that very second to last episode. Yeah, so I think that that was a really good way of just setting up the rest of the season and just building up to them having this one big confrontation. If there was a way that they could have just not met face-to-face and then what happens at the end of 13 happens, I almost think that could have been even better. But I do understand that you do need to very clearly, you do need to have one final scene between those two. Yeah, you absolutely do. Like, that's the big payoff, and I think... Uh, obviously some of these episode titles get released before people watch them and people knew that the name of the last episode was face off before you saw what happened and got the double entendre. So I think the payoff of having Gus and Walt come in that finale is such a great culmination of where this season goes. And I think having them stay away was so such a smart thing to do. The other thing we have not talked about with Walt yet is his relationship with Walt Jr., which I definitely want to talk about because you had mentioned that, Walt Jr. getting a car was something you wanted to pay attention to going into season four. And what Walter does is he tells Walt Jr. that he's not moving back in, but to cheer him up, he buys him this sweet Dodge Challenger. He's, he was going to buy him like a used car, but then they see this ad and Walt Jr. is like, well, if you're going to bribe me, might as well go all out with it. Skyler makes Walt return it because it's going to blow their cover and instead buys him a PT Cruiser for his birthday. What a mom choice of a car, by the way, is a a PT Cruiser. They deliberately went with the PT Cruiser because it feels like a very mom car that he would purchase his son. And he's polite enough, but you can tell his heart's a little broken to not have that Dodge Challenger anymore. I don't know. I'm not a car person, but I almost like the design of the PT Cruiser more. I don't know what that says about me. Well, you're also not a teenager in high school who's trying to impress his friends and other girls. I mean, even in high school, I don't think I was trying to do that either. And even if I was, I didn't do a very good job. Well, okay, fair enough. But I think 
the PT Cruiser is definitely more practical and probably the overall better car. But as uh, I think in, in terms of what Walt Jr. would have wanted, this is something that he really would have enjoyed in taking for a Joe ride, which Walt does and ends up uh, blowing it up, which is a whole lot of fun as well. I mean, it's just it's one of those one of those great moments. And of course, he has to call a cab to break him loose. And it's just funny. The idea of calling a cab now is just so absurd to me in this era of ride sharing and Ubering and lifting. And so so that's always amusing to me when they have to call a cab. And I love the fact that he also has to call Saul because he did blow up this car, even though it's in the middle of nowhere. He could have been arrested for it. And Saul just they casually mentioned that it gets knocked down to a misdemeanor. Yep, exactly. Well, that's even like, you know, you're you're seeing them get rid of the evidence in the first episode with Victor, like putting him in the, the barrel of the whatever the substance is going to like disintegrate himself in the box cutter and everything else to get rid of the evidence, which is really gruesome. But they got cleanup plans for everything, it seems like, even cars being blown up. And Walt ends up missing Walt Jr.'s birthday. Uh, him and Jesse get in a fight later in the season, and Walt is too drugged up and in pain, sleeps through it. And Walt Jr. comes over to check on him and ends up staying the night. And what I liked about this was in the morning, Walt apologizes for the state he was in. But Walt Jr. says he preferred that over the double life he had been living before with the gambling. So um, I thought that was very illuminating for Walt Jr. to say that. He's like, I've liked seeing my real dad lately as to how the way he's been behaving the past year. Again, Walt Jr. has been really... Not doing a whole lot, but eating breakfast in the past couple seasons and raising money for his dad. But I think having that son to dad heart to heart here was a really nice thing to kind of get inside of Walt Jr.'s head and where he is. Because, again, a lot of his fatherly moments had come from Hank in the first couple of seasons. This is a real sit down moment where he's willing to stay the night and he loves his dad and he's talking to him very candidly. And uh, I really appreciated them giving Walt Jr. that moment. Yeah, and it probably leads to one of Brian Cranston's best acting moments as he gets a monologue of his own that he gets to deliver back to his son about, you know, a wide range of things and talking about just kind of the issues that he's been dealing with. And obviously a lot of it is done in metaphor because he's not actually going to talk about the drugs. But in this specific case, uh, what ends up happening is, is that he does have this kind of great moment with his son. And this comes after, you know, he has the fight with Jesse and, you know, that, that is his surrogate son, even though they're not biologically related, that's a surrogate son. And he's just had his, this, this really dramatic moment with Jesse and it's questionable whether they're going to ever be friends or partners again. And then Walt goes and, and tells this, this, this story, this very powerful monologue. And one of the things um, that he talks about is the fact that his dad had Huntington's, di- Huntington's disease. And it comes across that, you know, his dad died prematurely. And you're in a situation where, in this case, Walt is very clearly being set up to die prematurely, either because he's going to be murdered by drug dealers or because of the cancer uh, coming back and killing him. So it's a, it's a really great monologue. It's a really great part of this show. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he fights his surrogate son and then makes some level of peace with his biological son. I don't either. But even remember when Walt Jr. is putting him back to bed and says, like, good night, dad. And he says, like, oh, good night, Jesse. Like, it is drugged out state. So really running home the surrogate son topic. And that'll bring us to talking about Walt and Jesse as a, as a pair what leads to that fight. Uh, Walt is being brought along on some of these stakeouts at Poyos Hermanos with 
Hank, uh, kind of against his will, which I know a scene that you loved was Hank singing Eye of the Tiger to pump him up on one of these stakeout missions. He decides he's going to bug Gus's car, like have it put a tracking device under his car. And Walt gets the same idea to do that to Jesse. And that's because he produces a ricin cigarette for Jesse to poison Gus when he gets the chance, since Jesse is getting these opportunities to see Gus and Walt is not. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of season two when they are talking about ricin as a poison. And despite the fact that Jesse is able to see Gus a handful of times and he has these moments to dump the the poison in either like pasta sauce or coffee or these other things, he can't do it. And I think he can't do that because he can't bring himself to kill again. And Walt and he keeps lying to Walt about not seeing Gus. And Walt learns he's lying through this tracking device and Jesse's pissed at him for this. And this is when they get in their physical altercation and Walt takes a awful head smack to the glass table in his living room and he gets sent away and you think well that's the dissolving of their relationship but I think it's even after this uh, Jesse makes some comment about Gus to not killing Walter he loses him but there's a lot of there begins this distrust between them and is Jesse it, it doesn't really question Jesse's loyalty I don't think I think that's what Walt thinks but I think uh, he, his life is better but he's obviously still not in the right state of mind to kill again yet is where jesse is and that brings this consternation between jesse and walt yeah i think they very clearly make an effort to separate these two for a lot of the season and kind of send them on their own separate journeys and i think that it really pays off in the fact that they become almost two different people at certain points and all you get you do get this questioning of loyalty as jesse is spending an increasing amount of time with both mike and gus and walt is trying to put things together at home uh, with the car wash and still dealing with um, his health issues. And I, uh, I think that that fight is, I mean, it's not a good fight, but it's a good fight within the context of they are clearly trying to portray these two people as people who can't fight. So I think it really works out. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the South Park episode um, cripple fight. Oh yes, of course. I, I kind of thought of that, which is kind of wrong. But, you know, I think – I mean, they were going for a scene that just it, – it's not a good fight because these are not two people who can fight. And I think it uh, it's just really well executed. And, I mean, the cigarette – there's so many things about this season where it's so clearly obvious, especially when you're binge-watching. Like, they're really hammering home the cameras being everywhere. And – they even go out of their way to show Gus at one point seeing what's going on and literally all these cameras at all these different locations, he can see what's going on and they really go out of their way to make the cameras feel important. The cigarette, I think the cigarette gets mentioned in consecutive episodes for most of the season. They're constantly reminding people that that rice and cigarette is in Jesse's pocket, no matter, because I, I don't know, it, Jesse must be buying other packs of cigarettes and putting that rice and one in there. I, I, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty funny, but they clearly are going out of their way to show you these things and they're going to pay it off because that's what the show does is that they're able to pay things off in spectacular fashion, even in unexpected ways. Right. And that cigarette pays off in the form of one day Andrea calls Jesse and says that Brock's been admitted to the hospital with flu-like symptoms that are worsening. And Jesse, outside of the hospital, after visiting, realizes his rice and cigarette is gone. And he panics and immediately assumes that Walt has poisoned Brock. He even goes to Walt's house to find and possibly kill him. And he's using Walt's own gun in this situation. And Walt, 
he he knows full well, I think, that Jesse is not going to kill him. He even puts the gun to his own head and tells Jesse to do it. And then Walt puts on the performance of the lifetime where he's piecing together that it must have been Gus who poisoned Brock and he and that what Gus has manipulated is trying to get Jesse to kill Walt for him. And they go this great back and forth between the two of them and you know, why Jesse? Why would I do this? Why would I why would I poison a child? That's kind of like the home run line there that Walt puts him out. Like none of this makes any sense and lays it out as to why Gus would do this for them. And he finally gets Jesse on board to aid with him in killing Gus. Uh, and their initial plan is to lure Gus to the hospital. Um, but and Jesse does this by saying he's not going back to work until Gus comes and talks to him face to face, giving Walt time to rig his car with an explosive. But some sixth sense than Gus uh, comes to him as he's walking back to his vehicle and he abandons it in the garage. And so they have to go to another plan. But that scene in the house with Jesse and Walt and about to pull the gun in his head is just some of the finest work from the two of them all season long. Can I just say that so Jesse is offended by the idea of of clearly children becoming involved, but he is okay with potentially setting off explosives at a hospital where there are many, many children. Well, if it's just the garage, I mean, hey, maybe maybe uh, Walt convinced him that the explosion would only it would only explode the car and the people inside it wouldn't hurt other people i mean if you look at the size of the explosion in the in the nursing home later it's not that unrealistic i suppose and like what if what if it doesn't go all the way and gus i mean if they call 911 the hospital's right there so his potential for recovery is also far greater well you obviously put a lot more thought into this than either walt or jesse did what i'm saying is that walt and jesse are not very good planners I guess not. But fortunately for them, they do have a backup plan because Gus does have one weakness they can exploit, and that is his hatred for Hector Salamanca. And that brings us to Gus Fring, our final character to discuss on this season. Uh, this is the season where we finally learn of the Gus's relationship with the cartel. And really, what I think is also not really, it's understated, but I think one of the questions is like, well, why didn't Gus act sooner? I think you needed to wait for Tuco and then the two cousins to be totally out of the picture before Gus can enact his plan of revenge on the cartel. And we get what I think is my favorite flashback of the whole series. It's it's a good 12 or so minutes. It's the final act of the episode, Hermanos, where we lay out Gus's relationship with the car, tar, cartel. And it's it's explicitly say this is 20 years ago. So the show's taking place in 2009. This is in 1989. Gus and his partner, Max, are brought to the home of Don Eladio in Mexico to meet with Don, uh, a younger Hector, and Juan Bolsa, who Gus had killed last season. And they're trying to make some sort of relationship with Don Eladio, who runs this Coke empire in Mexico to sell their methamphetamine that they have cooked up. Max is Gus's partner. Uh, they, they talk about it. he's the cook, and Don says, well, you know, the, why do I need you? And he doesn't like the means in which Gus obtain the meeting with Don Eladio, which was to give samples to his henchmen. And as a very gruesome act to send a message to Gus, they shoot Max in the head, force Gus to face him on the ground as he bleeds out into the pool. Again, probably my favorite flashback sets the table for how he got involved with the cartel way back when. And I don't know about you, Jerome, and this is something that I haven't just said, but a lot of people say it's pretty heavily intimated. And through this entire scene, 
that I think Gus and Max may have been more than just friends or partners. There's definitely, I think, some very heavy in, you know, it's heavily intimated that they may either be romantically involved or like a step beyond friends, if you know what I mean. Hmm. I didn't get that impression until you just said it, but that would make a lot of sense because he is very clearly emotional about what's happening and we don't really know anything else about his personal life. So that is certainly an intimation that would make a lot of sense. We don't really see him dating anyone as a matter of fact. And I guess you could say he's married to his work and perhaps, you know, that flashback was very good. And I think I've, I think I've said this before, but one of the things that I hate about a lot of peak TV shows these days is that they will do entire flashback episodes and it will come at a really important point in the season, and it will just be like, oh, can we just get back to the story that we're paying attention to? And the thing that I really liked about this flashback is that it wasn't the entire episode, but it was a good enough amount of time to where a lot of things, they were paying off some things, and they were setting things up for the for the season's endgame, so to speak. And I thought that this flashback was pretty brilliant, because it really set up what was going to happen. It set up the the atmosphere that they were going to be going back to in the in this in a later episode. Um, it showed a character that we had not seen before, but that we would see again, and it showed us why Gus does not like Hector, which we we had that context. We which we would have the context for because we already knew that Gus and Hector did not have a great relationship. But the fact that they were able to introduce these other elements and then bring them back, I think, is is pretty brilliant. And just the way that the flashback pays off, and then when we get to the later scene where you know something is going to happen, but it's just a matter of what is going to happen and how is it going to happen. And they they set something up with this this wonderful bottle of booze and that everybody just shots and... You're expecting it to be poison, but then Gus does the shot, and you just don't know what's going on. And it's obviously a great job of setting up tension, but it's also making you question, like, as an audience member, like, you're used to these kinds of scenes and how they pay off, but it's not paying off in the way that you expect. And then Gus goes to the bathroom and makes himself puke, and that's when everything clicks. And it's like, well, here we go. And then everybody starts falling, dying. Mike... (laughs) Um, we get a we get a nice choke out, and I mean that scene is just absolutely brilliant. And that scene doesn't work unless you have the flashback. So I think the flashback works on its own, but then retroactively becomes better by that later scene. Yeah, and I think what it does too is it gives you a scope of how just far ahead Gus is in thinking of everything, and it and it's great too because then it's the the next episode or two episodes or whatever where. Uh, Walt, what he's laying out that Gus must have done this to Jesse, he says like, man, Gus is like 10 steps ahead of us. But really, it's like Walt in his head. He's like, I'm ahead of him. Um, but Jesse is experiencing how far ahead Gus is on all of this. One, because he gets Jesse down to Mexico, telling him he's going to teach the cartels people how to cook. And then later, Gus says, oh, we're going to keep you down here and you're going to cook for them. But then after this happens, Gus intentionally poisons himself and Mike ends up getting shot during this whole thing. And they go to this makeshift hospital that Gus has had made for who knows how long. And they're tending to him and Je- and they literally don't care about Gus. Jesse has to take him into this hospital. 
and they drop the line about, you know, Gus is the one who pays our checks. That's when it really clicks in Jesse's head, the scope of what the, the, the network Gus has built and how far ahead he's able to think, which I think helps. He, he's seeing this firsthand and it makes it more convincing when Wald explains to him that he must have been the one who poisoned him. Um, and I think it hurts him more because they're not caring about Mike until they're done with him. And they've had that relationship they've built. Uh, but also Mike has to get shot and getting taken care of because then he has to stay in Mexico for a week, which is uh, a very lucky for Walton Jesse, as it turns out. Yeah, Mike is uh, kind of in the wind at the end of the season because we don't see him again after he gets shot. So that will be one of the big things that we'll have to think about for season five, I assume. Uh, we'll see. Fair enough. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I was going to say then we have Gus returning to we see another short flashback where he's telling Hector that he killed the cousins out of simply out of revenge, uh, sangre for sangre. Uh, Then he returns after the Donald audio meeting to tell Hector rubbing his face that the entire Salamaca lineage has been wiped out except for him. And there's no doubt these meetings helped Walt to convince Hector of his ultimate plan where first he goes to the DEA, an amazing scene with him at the DEA, which Gus doesn't see the meeting, but he does see that Hector went to the DEA, making him think that Hector is now in cahoots with them. And this causes Gus to make a personal visit to Hector, along with Tyrus, to the nursing home. It's something that Gus has to take care of himself. And thanks to a bomb that Walt has rigged up to the bell on Hector's wheelchair, kaboom! An explosion goes and Hector kills himself, Gus and Tyrus. And one of the best scenes of the show... Gus walks out of the room, half of his body and half of his face have been burned, and he adjusts his tie before falling down to his death in only a very Gus fashion. But I think not only these flashbacks have to happen to set up, you had to have them to set up to convince you, like, why would Hector kill himself to get to Gus? Well, here it is. He's wiped out his entire family lineage, and you also have to show, like, Hector's in a pretty miserable position in this nursing home, so... Hayes willing to take his life to take out Gus's, and it is quite the death scene for Breaking Bad, but a very appropriate way, I think, to take out someone of Gus's stature. Yes, and they also had to have a specific place that did not have a camera in it as well. That's also something that that gets paid off, too. That's worth it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just one of the best scenes in the entire run of the show. Gus's death is, is famous. I think the only thing that I would have changed is... Uh, I don't think the CGI has aged, aged very well. I think that's the o- only unfortunate part of it. But, I mean, otherwise, I don't think you could do a better job of ending a character than the way that you end Gus here. And Gus is one of the all-time great antagonists in the history of television because he's just so unique and his presentation is so unique and there's so much depth to the character. It's not just – he's not a, a psychopath. He's this very calm character – um, he is somebody who takes his time. He knows multiple languages. He's a successful business owner, like a successful legitimate business owner, as a matter of fact. And yeah, I just really appreciate everything that they did with Gus. And it's um, it's really noteworthy that they were able to make such an iconic character in not a lot of time. I mean, he is not, if you look at the history of the show, he's really not in that many episodes and even in not in that many scenes, but they make him so distinctive. And even if he is not in scenes, he is such a presence throughout this season that there 
there really is it it really can't get much better uh than than gus fring and the thing that i was thinking about as we were going through this season and obviously if you look at his background he is chilean he is not the same race and but i couldn't help but think that there are a lot of similarities between just the way that he presents himself and the president of the united states at the time barack obama just from the looks the cadence of their speech, I could not help but make connections between those two. Kevin, I can't be the first one who said this, right? <sighs> Probably not, but it's something that I didn't even really consider, but it's definitely it definitely speaks to the time at which this show took place. And yeah, maybe it's uh maybe it isn't a mistake. I mean, I I would like to think it's kind of deliberate. It's never explicitly stated by people in the show anyways, but I mean, his his top vice president is even an older white guy. There you go. But yeah, like Gus Fring for me is like an all-time television villain and uh, Giancarlo, I forget what his last name is already, but Giancarlo Esposito just, wow, it literally and figuratively blew me away in his performance in Breaking Bad. Esposito, ha, blew you away, huh? Sure did. Uh, and then just to wrap up the season, Walt and Jesse burn down the lab. Uh, Jesse tells Walt they discovered Brock didn't suffer from rice and poisoning, but instead from this flower called Lily of the Valley that children will sometimes ingest because it tastes sweet. Uh, once Jesse leaves, another iconic moment, Walt calls Skylar to tell him he is okay and that, quote unquote, he won. And then this, the final shot of the season is the White's backyard in their family garden, Lily in the Valley, has been planted. So... Our suspicions are confirmed. Walt was a mastermind and got what he needed out of Jesse. And uh, that's the end of season four. And I guess you could say a seed was planted for season five. Boom. You could say that. And one other little hang dangling thing is very important for season five is first we see Saul is is getting ready to flee New Mexico in the midst of all this stuff going down. And he also makes Walt aware that if things get to Harry, there is a a plan where they could basically – it's like a, a a more souped up version of a witness protection plan that Walt was ready to buy for his whole family until he realized that they didn't have enough money for it because Skylar gave it to Ted Beneke, which leads to one of the more crazy endings of the episode with him in the crawl space. Yeah, I was going to say we need to talk about that ending for a second because it might be my favorite of the entire series because – you're wondering where Skylar got the money to give to Ted and you're just wondering about this. And it's like, do they really have this much money? And then you see Walt counting the money and it's like, there's not enough. And it just degenerates into him crying and then laughing. And Oh my God, it's so great. And Skylar gets the phone call right then and there from Marie panicked about, there's been another attempt to, you know, the, the cartel are coming back for Hank and the, the, the noise, the music they play in the background is like, probably the legal loud limit you can get on a television show for noise. It is a really, it's a hell of an ending to an episode. And like I told you, this is the same episode where, where Ted Beneke had the comedic fall. And so if you can have that in this incredibly tense moment at the end of the same episode, just that is just masterful stuff. I mean, it kind of sounds like a Hans Zimmer TV score, I guess is the only thing that I can think of when I was listening to it, because it's something that they repeat in many of the episodes and I think it works out really well, really helps to establish attention. It's something completely different than anything else that we've heard uh, score wise up till now. Yeah, it was very phenomenal. 
A uh, couple other quick notes I have that uh, that I wanted to mention is I already mentioned there was 20 years between the Gus and Don Eladio meetings that happened in Hermanos and Salud. Don Eladio is played by actor Steve Bauer and uh, Hector Salamanca is played by the actor Mark Margolis. And they were both in the movie Scarface. And two days after the episode Hermanos aired with the meaning of them killing Max, there was a Scarface anniversary event in Hollywood that they both attended. So that was very interesting timing, having this reunion of the Scarface actors on Breaking Bad just a couple days before this big anniversary party took place. And then you remember the scene, I think it was the last episode where Walt's going back to their house to get money because uh, Francesca, the wonderful uh, receptionist for Saul, wants this big $20,000 bribe to give him Saul's whereabouts. Uh, but first he calls his neighbor to go check to see if the stove is on to make sure he's basically using it to see are there going to be people inside of Gus's waiting for him. The neighbor who Walt calls to go over to check on a stove is played by Vince Gilligan's mother. So he got her involved in the episode there. Keeping it all in the family. And I just want to say that that scene with Francesca and Walt is also fantastic. And again, this idea of just being able to have comedy on this show, I think is so important to break up some of the tension. And that scene is genuinely hilarious. Everything from Walt coming in to Francesca's bribe and outsmarting Waltz. I just, I really appreciated that scene. Yeah, she is absolutely fantastic. Uh, big, big shout out to Francesca. Does not get enough love, I don't think, for her acting in this show. And that ends it for my notes, Jerome. What else do you have uh, about the, the season that you want to say? I mean, I think we've covered a lot of the important elements of the show. And I think that in almost every conceivable way, I think season four is better than season three, the way they ratchet up the tension. And every episode, it seems like something is happening. I think there are a couple exceptions early on. But like I said, I mean, once you get into see episodes 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I mean, you're talking about probably one of the best runs that you'll ever see. As good as the finale is, and it is really good, I think episode 11 might be my favorite of the entire series just because they're able to contrast Ted dying with this very dramatic end moment and just Walt laughing. It's, I mean, it just it doesn't get any better than this. And I am, uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting to the final season because it's very clear that they have set up an endgame. Seeds literally have been planted as we move forward. And I know that, you know, I think it's kind of sad. It's both sad and good that we're going to the final season. It's sad in that we're almost done, but this is the kind of show. If they tried to stretch it to seven or eight seasons, I don't think it would work at all. And I think we would be complaining about it going too long. I truly think this going five seasons is perfect. Yeah. I would say that season four is is an, is a contender for my favorite season of television I've ever watched. Uh, just start to finish, especially the end. Like once you get into that stretch, from I would say like when Hank's giving his big speech to the DEA. Like once he's getting back into action through the end of the season, man, does the show get cooking? And it's just some of the best television I feel like I've ever seen. Uh, so this is a real pleasure to rewatch and talk about. Uh, I'm so excited for us to experience season five, which we are going to be breaking up into two episodes. We'll talk about episodes one through eight next month, then at nine through 16, the second. That's how the season aired. And let's be honest, that would be like the longest podcast of all time if we didn't split it up into two. But it's just very logical to do it that way. 
Um, and I'm very excited to watch that and get to the end of the Breaking Bad television show with you next month. And uh, man, I'm I'm we're we're gonna we're keeping going. And it, I I I felt the same way when I did the Lost podcast, but it feels like it's almost like re-experiencing it for the for the first time because there's been such a a lapse between watching it. And it's like in some ways it's even better than I remembered. Yeah, I am just excited to see where this all ends up, and I. I I have the understanding now that it's going to go on in some form or fashion. There's El Camino, there's Better Call Saul, but I can't imagine watching it at this time. People at this time, there's no way they can imagine a prequel spinoff or a sequel movie. So that, so people are thinking like season five, when it, when it's the end, it's the end, but it's it. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit different for me just because I know that we're going to continue to hang out in this universe Probably not with Walt very much, but we're still going to be hanging out in this universe. So those emotions are are not as as present for me. But I know that we are going to be reaching we are going to reach an endgame of some sort uh, by the end of season five. Well, you said the word endgame, Jerome. I think that is a perfect time to lead into some plugs for what else you got going on this website and social media. Yes, uh, you can go to listen to Superhero Pantheon this month. As a matter of fact, this will be our last month doing the show, at least volume two. And we will be reviewing Captain Marvel. We will be reviewing Spider-Man Far From Home. And our season finale, volume finale, will be Avengers Endgame. And that will probably be the longest podcast that we do uh, for Superhero Pantheon. Because we'll we'll also be doing some final reflections on the last couple of years, doing the show and all that good stuff. And uh, you can go back into the past and listen to a whole archive, over 50 episodes covering a wide range of superhero movies. You, of course, can also go to 411media.com. If you are a wrestling fan, Larry Zonka and myself have been discussing the documentary series Dark Side of the Ring, so you can go do that. You can also listen to Kevin Ford and I's previous podcast project, where we discussed four seasons and a movie of Veronica Mars. And that's all I got, Kevin. Go ahead. So for me, you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. But for here on The Real World, myself and Ben Lundy did the entire Lost television series, covered it on podcast form. Uh, also covered the the alternate reality game, video game, uh, the, the book that they did. Tons of stuff, everything Lost covered in those episodes. You can go check those out if you decide to rewatch Lost during your quarantine time. And myself, Justin Houston, and Brad Garoon, our archives of our Adventure Time podcast, Flooping the Pig, are currently going up two episodes per week. Once we have caught up, we'll be doing one episode per week, wrapping up where we left off, and then we'll, of course, come back for the HBO Max episodes as well. But there's plenty of great stuff to do on Enter the Real World in between our episodes of our Breaking Bad podcast that we're recording in advance, but you are slowly digesting one month at a time. Uh, and thanks so much, Jerome, as always, for joining me and going through this journey. I am I cannot wait for us to go through Season 5. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. <laughs>